This is Conducting Business. I'm Naomi Lewin. Last week, a Los Angeles jury found that the pop stars Robin Thicke and Pharrell Williams copied Marvin Gaye's 1977 song, Gotta Give It Up, in their song, Blurred Lines. And the jury awarded Gaye's estate $7.4 million. His family celebrated the jury's decision, but a lot of composers wondered if copyright is now being extended to cover not just lyrics and melody, but a lot of other stuff like tone, rhythm, tempo. Classical music would sound a lot different today if composers from Palestrina to Bach, Stravinsky to John Williams didn't borrow or steal melodies. In a moment, we'll talk to a music copyright consultant who worked on the Blurred Lines case. First, joining us on the line is Mark Swed, the classical music critic of the Los Angeles Times. You looked at how borrowing works in classical music in the article you wrote this week. Does the Blurred Lines verdict have any real implications for classical composers and their estates? I don't know. I don't know that anybody knows. The problem is is that it blurs more lines. Is <laughs> Everything is very vague, and nobody's quite sure how this will all fall out. But it's worrisome because music works in a different way than the courts work. You know, the arts are often about breaking rules, and the courts are all about maintaining rules. I mean, the tradition in music from certainly the roots of classical music, but really in most musical traditions, is to build one thing upon another. And, you know, rhythmic patterns, bass lines, things like this, are generally thought of as common property. You could, in India, you could never have the raga if you didn't have that sense. And we wouldn't have minimalism today if we didn't have the raga. And, you know, Western music developed through the use of chants. I was going to uh, play an example from that, just kind of pray, one of our most influential experimental composers back in the day was known for writing what was called a paraphrase or parody mass. You want to talk about that? You know, Josquin Dupre wrote masses based on other people's works, and the idea that, that a mass would be based on either a secular, sometimes they were based on secular melodies that came from troubadours, Sometimes they were based on sacred melodies, and sometimes the composer would write his own melody. And that was kind of an unusual thing, actually. Well, I want to play an example right now. First, the Gregorian chant, Pange Lingua, which many people think was composed by Thomas Aquinas. And now, the Pange Lingua Mass by Josquin Desprez. That sort of thing, that sort of compositional thing happened all the time back then, right? It did, and it continued to happen all the time throughout history of reworking one thing from another. And um, this, is, this is how music is made. So copyright is just a very 
tricky thing to deal with in music. Especially when there wasn't any copyright yet. I've got another example with, of all composers, Bach. Here is Vivaldi's Concerto for Four Violins. Now Bach's Concerto for Four Keyboard Instruments. Was Bach covering his tracks or maybe making improvements by changing the instrumentation and key when he reworked Vivaldi? You know, he was, I guess today we would call it, he was covering Vivaldi. He was, most of us would think he was making improvements on it. He was working with material that he thought was really interesting, and he wanted to put his own stamp on it. John Adams does exactly the same thing. He's done it with Morton Feldman. He's done it with others, where he will get obsessed with with a piece of music, and then he'll rework it and make it completely different and make it purely John Adams, but the DNA comes from someplace else. And these things happen all the time. You know, Wagner did not patent the Tristan chord. And music wouldn't evolve if, he, if composers did do that. You mentioned the Tristan chord. There are also cases where one composer clearly quotes another deliberately. Here is the Tristan chord, the so-called Tristan chord, from Wagner's opera Tristan and Isolde. And then Claude Debussy very charmingly quotes the Tristan chord in the Gollywog's Cakewalk in his children's corner. Is there a difference between quoting as sort of an homage and borrowing in the borrowing or stealing sense? I think there is, but it's, again, you know, we're dealing with a very big subject and a very vast world, and these things have, have again, blurred lines. Sometimes it is just a quote and it's a reference. Sometimes it's using it in, in ways that are more integral. Sometimes it's a parody. Do we really want a world without PDQ Bach? <laughs> well, that's sort of clearly parody that's a grim and parody. thought. <laughs> and now, of course, in many of these cases, you're dealing with a composer quoting from a historical a work that's long out of copyright, and that's that's not an issue. But but often that's not the case. In fact, even in PDQ Bach's situation, he he has a. Um, one of his pieces is Einstein on the Fritz, which takes off from Philip Glass. Einstein on the beach, obviously. Right, with, with Glass's blessing. As long as we're in the present day, a couple of years ago, 
Composer Osvaldo Golihov faced accusations of plagiarism when a couple of bloggers discovered that his Sidereus, a nine-minute piece that was commissioned by a group of orchestras, contained a big chunk of music from an earlier work by Michael Ward Bergman, who was a close friend of Golihov's. Now, Ward Bergman had authorized Golihov to use his music, but there were questions about whether that arrangement was adequately disclosed. What is the responsibility to the listener, in your view, in a case like that? In that case, I think there was a lot of misunderstanding about the way Golihov works. And the way he works very often is using other material and collaborating with people and reworking. It's a very complex and integral process, the way he works. And he's always worked this way. He makes it his own music. He does acknowledge that he collaborates often. What about composers who borrow from folk songs? Is that something different? I don't think so. I mean, again, I, I just think that there's a lot of sharing in music, and we should think of it as that. And there, there can be theft, but I don't think that that's a real issue. I mean, it can happen, but I don't think that's a major problem that we need to be having massive amounts of legislation about. I think there will be more and more and more sharing because in the Internet age, you can't stop it. So I think we need to figure out ways to accommodate everyone. Where do you come down on film music? Are the rules different there? For example, a lot of John Williams sounds like a lot of other composers who came before him. It does. And he's taken things from other composers and made, him his own, and made it his own. For example, I mean, I mentioned that Star Wars sounds an awful lot like there's a little bit of a symphony by Korngold. Korngold clearly influenced Williams from day one. Korngold was the composer who essentially created the symphonic style of film music in the 30s, an immigrant Austrian composer who came to Hollywood. And that's been a huge influence on Williams and on many, many other composers, not just, not just Williams. And Williams took a little teeny idea that Korngold does very little with in the symphony, and Williams saw that this could be something much, much more. I mean, I referred to it not as, as lifting, but as elevating. He saw the possibility in something and went with it. And the world, for the most part, has been very happy that he did that. I also hear a lot of Holst when I hear Williams and any number of other people. Sure. And William Walton and other people. And, you know, he's a bit of a, of a sieve in doing this. But many composers are that, and, you know, he does what works for films, and you can like it or dislike it, but I don't consider that theft. I just consider that absorbing influences. Well, we'll see how this all plays out. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure. Thank you. Up next, we'll talk to a musicologist who is also a music copyright expert.
We just heard what one prominent music critic thinks about the implications of the Blurred Lines case. Now we'll hear from an expert who was called on to analyze the two songs involved. Dr. Lawrence Ferrara is a professor of music at New York University. He's also a music copyright consultant for record labels, music publishing companies, and film studios. Ferrara has worked on cases for major artists, including Lady Gaga, Paul McCartney, U2, and Andrew Lloyd Webber, among others. He joins us on the line from Florida. You were hired by Marvin Gaye's widow, Jan Gaye, to do an analysis of the two songs in the Blurred Lines case. And then a week later, Sony called asking you to do the same thing. But ultimately, your report was never used. What happened? So essentially, all of the parties called me. Uh, But to the extent that the Gaye estate called first, I was conflicted from providing any opinion for any of the subsequent callers. I mean, that's the bottom line. And then what happened to your report? My report uh, was not submitted with the uh, gay estate response, and as a result, the attorney for Robin Thicke and Farewell Williams... Who knew that you had done one for the gay estate. Who knew that I had done one because uh, I had uh, turned down uh, his request, as well as Sony's, to write a report on their behalf. As a result of that, the attorney for Thicke and Williams subpoenaed my report, and the attorney on behalf of the Gay Estate submitted a quash motion to forbid that, and ultimately the federal court here in the Southern District of New York granted the quash motion, and so my report uh, never saw the light of day. In response to the ruling, New York Times pop critic John Caramonica wrote that it's a weak tactic and possibly an irresponsible one, to use sheet music as a measure of a pop song's originality because pop songs are more created in the studio than composed. What do you say to that? It's important to recognize that in copyright law, when there is a sound recording, and that's what we're speaking to, uh, that the sound recording, in addition to the actual sounds in the sound recording, but also the performance uh, the uh, the various inflections and so forth in the performance, that those rights uh, are essentially uh, held by the owner of the sound recording. And if you look at the uh, on the back of a CD, you'll see a small P, P as in Peter, with a circle around it. Uh, that is the phono rights. It's not P for patent, but the phono rights. And that is the sound recording, what goes on in the studio, the performance, all of that. On the other hand, what was at issue in the Blurred Lines litigation was not the sound recording. What was at issue was the composition embodied in the sound recording. That's the C uh, with the circle around it at the back of the of the CD. Uh, and as a result, generally, what one can transcribe into musical notation represents the composition that's embodied in the sound recording. Well, what were you called on to dissect? Was it the C or the P? Was it the actual written music or was it the produced music? I was called upon to to provide an analysis of what you're calling the C, of the composition that was embodied in the sound recording, and it is my understanding that that was all that was at issue uh, in the trial. That is, there was no claim 
that Blurred Lines took a part of the sound recording from Marvin Gaye's original work and embedded it into the Blurred Lines sound recording. So this was not a sound recording litigation. It was a composition litigation. One can always find uh, works that have uh, similarities, but uh, I think the, in, the, the important uh, issue in the Blurred Lines litigation uh, was that uh, you're quite correct that, that hearing the production, uh, which more readily puts forward the style and so forth, that those things can be very helpful uh, so that a jury can hear those kinds of similarities. But feel and vibe and, and similarity in and of themselves are ideas. They're musical ideas. They're ideas uh, that generally cannot be monopolized. On the other hand, what one can own uh, is uh, a, a melody, uh, particularly uh, a melody that's contextualized uh, with rhythm and, and, and harmony. Melody tends to be the meat uh, in a music copyright issue, and you get to the melody by transcribing the notes and literally stacking one over the other and saying, these are the notes that line up, these are the notes that don't, here's the harmonic context, uh, here's the way the melodies develop similarly or differently, and so forth. That's what gets you at the musical expression that's ultimately the test for whether or not there's been an infringement. Have you ever been called on to analyze classical music? Uh, yes, uh, I've actually uh, done any number of analyses, first for motion picture companies, uh, and uh, very often, uh, as you know, uh, motion picture film tracks uh, have music that, uh, though we would call them film scores and film music, are fully as classical uh, as uh, any uh, classical work, and very often... In fact, uh, um, Mark Swed, who we spoke with earlier, said he felt that like the definitions were much looser of originality and borrowing in film music. Would you agree with that? No, I think that the, uh, that the threshold for what would be constituted, uh, what would constitute an infringement in film music is going to be very similar to that in popular music. Uh, and once again, the beef of that is going to tend to be in the melody. What perhaps the, uh, the critic you mentioned is pointing to is that those kinds of copyright litigations don't tend to occur in classical music. Uh, they do uh, tend to occur in film music uh, and uh, certainly in popular music. What is your process like? How do you start working on an analysis in 25 words or less? <laughs> Essentially listening to both works in their entirety, identifying similarities as well as differences, and then transcribing into musical notation the similar sections for a more detailed musicological analysis. And how do you guard against personal bias, maybe based on your own taste or opinion of an artist, or maybe based on who has hired you? That's a great question. Uh, I think that uh, first, with respect to uh, any bias regarding who has hired me, uh, one of the reasons why the happening in the blurred line trial, that is that essentially all of the parties called me uh, at one point to uh, engage my services, uh, is the fact that my reputation is that I am very, very independent. Uh, that is, the reputation is I give bad news as, uh, as often as I give good news. Uh, and so my analysis is absolutely untouched by any biases to who has called. 
uh, if I think that a potential plaintiff doesn't have the musicological support for a, a claim, I tell them that. If I think that a potential defendant, in my opinion, has copied protected expression, I tell them that, and then I suggest that they settle, or if, it, if this is a work that hasn't been yet released, that they try to license uh, the use of the expression from the other song, uh, as well as you know, telling plaintiffs, yes, I, I support this, and I, uh, I think the musicology does. You know, if you want to move forward, I'll be happy to write a report, and with defendants as well. So that's the first point, that the bias really isn't an issue. What's most important, though, uh, is that when transcribing the music, what you are doing is you're creating an objective representation of the musical composition. And the melody is there. Uh, a musicologist on the other side could say, well, I don't agree with that note. I think it's, it's a half step higher or a half step lower. But essentially, you know, the melody that you transcribed is objectively the melody that's at issue. Can you, do you, differentiate between legitimate borrowing and theft? For instance, Aaron Copeland putting the song Simple Gifts into Appalachian Spring. Mm -hmm. That's a quote. How do you differentiate between a quote and stealing? <laughs> well, Appalachian Spring and Simple Gifts uh, is an example of incorporated a public domain work. That is, uh, there is no copyright holder on Simple Gifts. It, it is a, a song that is in the public domain. Anyone can use and anyone can incorporate on the other hand, had the full melody of, of Simple Gifts been under copyright protection and had it been used in that fashion in Appalachian Spring, then it would have been a music copyright infringement had Aaron Copeland not secured uh, a license to so use. The critic from the L.A. Times uh, was correct in suggesting that uh, when it comes to classical music, uh, there is much more, what, forgiveness, less of a tendency uh, to litigate. Uh, that may be uh, because of the, uh, of the nature of uh, the kinds of uh, revenues that a classical work uh, might bring in, and ultimately, therefore, a uh, plaintiff might be able to secure. I mean, it's one thing uh, to, uh, for a classical work uh, to bring in thousands of dollars uh, in revenues uh, and perhaps to have uh, potentially infringed another work. It's quite another uh, for a big hit to bring in millions upon millions of dollars and have potentially infringed another work. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Lawrence Ferrara a professor of music at New York University and a music copyright consultant. Thank you very much, Naomi. This has been Conducting Business. Brian Wise is our producer. I'm Naomi Lewin. Thanks for listening.